Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my inimitable co-host Teos Abadia, who's not at all loopy. No, no, uh, I had my uh, COVID and flu shots, and I understand you did as well. I did. That's why we are so excited to be here, unflued, uncovided, did, did, mm-hmm. and ready to do this thing. Oh, fantastic. And so we'll get right into it. We'll get right into our listener corner. I'm just going to say one thing first, though, is, you know, we love to hear that we're wrong because (laughs) when we hear we're wrong, that means we've learned something. But in order to tell us we're wrong, you have to show your work. Mm. Um, You know, if if we get a rule wrong or if we say something that's wrong, absolutely tell us about it on Facebook, on Twitter, on on Mastodon, on uh, blue sky on you uh, youtube on tell us on all the places but just sort of show your work say yeah you missed this on page 17 of of the the player's handbook you said this and see there it is and then we learn if you just say you guys got everything wrong but you don't tell us what we got wrong or how we got it wrong we don't know yeah so and then leave your address just, so we can find you and uh tell you how we and feel tell about them them. Tell you in person how happy we are and how pleased we are uh, that that you're teaching us. Now you don't have to do that, but uh, seriously, yeah, let us yeah. know. We, we we love to hear from you, just like we heard from these folks. First, we heard from Victor Navone via Twitter. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm sorry, Victor, if I didn't, and you can correct me. Why do you think Watsi doesn't release adventure modules for D and D? It seems like they could sell a lot of small, soft cover adventures at a cheaper price point, and DMs would get a sam- get to sample content from different campaigns without having to invest money in a hardcover book. And this is this is a great question, and it, it goes to some things that we've talked about in the past. And the short answer is I don't know for sure why they don't. I don't have access to the market research that they do. I don't have access to their internal numbers, both in terms of their audience, but also in terms of the projects that they're working on. But I do have some general observations and I will make them and I will let Teos add his uh, or correct me if he's seen something different than I have in, in this. And so the first thing is, when you sell player content or even like lore world information, you sell to a large percentage of your potential audience. When you sell adventures, you sell to a much, much, much smaller percentage of your potential audience because think of it this way. If there are six players and one DM, generally you are then selling to one in every seven people when you sell an adventure as opposed to you know, seven out of seven or six out of seven. So that's one thing right there. Uh, Teos, any other thoughts on this question along mm-hmm. these lines? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely spot on. If you look at 5e, which has done really well on its adventure sales compared to the sales of modules and, and you know, previous attempts at TSR, um, when we compare those numbers, it looks like 5e is gangbusters better for most releases. And I think that's because these big releases include player content, they include setting information, they include the adventure, they include monsters, magic items, spells, backgrounds. All of that entices more people to buy it as this bigger item. And so they don't want a few small sales, they want everybody in the D&D sphere to want to buy this one 
release that they're doing to validate all of that print and distribution cost and all of that, that that you see. So I think that's really what's at the heart of it is that bigger is actually a wider audience and therefore better. Another thing is that printing and distribution is expensive. Even if it's a small soft cover, you are paying a printer to print. You are paying distributors to distribute. You are paying everybody along the way. Uh, so you can say, well, hard covers are so much more expensive than soft covers. Yes, but small soft covers are still expensive. And that doesn't include paying the people to make them, which is also an expense. Uh, you still either have to pay freelancers to do the work, you have to pay your staff to, instead of working on this, work on this. Yeah. A project that I'm wrapping up right now, I'm not going to talk about it for NDA reasons, but it's on the smaller side. It took me probably four times as many hours as I thought it would take. And it brought into the project so many more people than I thought there would be involved in giving feedback, in editing, in commenting on different parts of it. If this is a tiny, tiny project compared to a huge you know, 256 page hardcover book, and it took that much to do it, then you're still paying a lot more than you're probably making. Even if you make a 32 page, a 16 page small module in the sense of, we called them back in first edition days where you'd get, you know, the 32 page steading of the hill giant chief, uh, you know, soft, soft cover module. Thoughts there. Yeah, I think that that you you again want to operate on such a large scale. Like uh, D and D wants to operate on a brand level, right? Not on a small individual module level. And so releasing some small adventure isn't that helpful to D and D as a brand. They want big, huge banner sized announcements of Planescape, right? All those videos you see right now, trying to that we're going to talk about drumming up all this interest. That's the kind of thing they want. And they want the stories that they release to register at a big scale, right? I mean, they can't quite get to the Marvel level, but that's what they'd like to be at, where they announce a thing, whether it's a TV show, a movie, a book, or whatever, and that everybody pays attention to it, writ large, big scale, feels enormous, feels bigger than anything someone else could do. Releasing small modules is sort of what everybody else does, right? Mm-hmm. And this gets us to sort of the sad truth about publishing in general, is that especially in tabletop role-playing games, prices are too low. Prices are way, way too low. To actually cover, to actually make money on a, say, a 32-page short module that you would buy in a store like you used to, they would have to charge a price that would cause a revolt. And people would say, oh, money grab, money grab. Oh, look, they're, they're charging you $25 for this little 32-page thing. Uh, that's what they would have to charge mm-hmm. to, to make it even close to remotely profitable for them. And then you get a revolt. What are the alternatives? Put out an inferior product, right? Without all the art, without all the editing, without all of the care that goes into it. Even if they put a lot of care into it, even if we as game designers put a lot of care into things, there are still problems and people still complain. 
But at this level, you're cutting out of editing and development and art and layout. You're cutting out a lot of that stuff. And you you would get a product that would actually be worth the pittance that art is charged for, for an adventure. And people would be unhappy because it didn't look good. But then they would be unhappy if you charge too much. And it's just, it's not worth it, especially at the level that Wizards is at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately, because it is neat. But that's where the rest of the industry comes in. And provides those mm -hmm. kinds of small, tiny experiences, right? D&D, if they release a short adventure, it's going to be in a box set or it's going to be part of a setting book. Um, so it's up to other country, uh, companies to fill that space. Yeah, and the, the that makes a great point that there are those adventures there now. There are those modules there now. They're all over the DMs Guild. Mm -hmm. And wizards could take advantage of this. They, they sort of do already without trying because without putting <laughs> one tiny lick of work in, they are making money on those things. It's not a lot mm -hmm. in the large scale, but it's something. But they could say, well, you want your 32-page module? It's right there on the DMs Guild. Let us advertise it for you. Oh, look, here are 10 adventures. Look at Ashes of Athos or Oracle of War, mm -hmm. right? Oracle of War is a at least 20, 20 plus adventure series that takes characters from levels 1 to 20. It's setting there, ready for Aberon players to play it. If Wizards of the Coast just pushed it a bit and said, hey, we're sponsoring this, well, which they did, right? They did sponsor it, but they're not taking advantage of it. That could be your thing. Oh, we're going to do a print-on-demand, and now you can print it. You can pr print uh, each individual adventure. You get 32 pages adventure for, you know, 10 bucks, or get the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> but they, it's still not worth it for them yeah. to do that in the yeah. long run, right? It's still, it still doesn't, the amount of work they would have to put in to do that would not even start to pay for the time and the effort that it would take to do it. Uh, so yeah. it's it's just it's an industry thing that makes it hard uh, for us to get what we want within a reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's worth remembering that those days of TSR having, you know, Walden books and other stores in your mall filled with all those modules, that wasn't a profitable model. <laughs> it was yeah. it was based on a lot of problems behind the scenes that you can read about in some of the latest historical books, but that was not based on a model of of profitability. It was based on some really bizarre math that TSR was playing with, rather than it being a sound model. So it's, it's never really been something that works. For sure. So thank you for that question, Victor. I, I hope that helps uh, at least with that specific aspect of your question. And we have George PR via Mastodon who says, I really like D&D. There are some rough edges that I dislike, and I keep thinking about designing my own game. I realize, though, that this makes no logical sense as designing a game is a huge undertaking and D&D is pretty great. How do you know when to build something new or just to modify it? As designers, do you just take D&D as it is, or do you have house rules to shave down the areas you don't like? Uh, yes. Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I played around with all kinds of weird things when I was young. As a way of sort of cutting my teeth on these kinds of things, I would 
make all kinds of house rules to my D&D. I took Shadowrun and I converted it to the D&D rules because I didn't really like how the rules worked in the original Shadowrun. So I had this weird Shadowrun to D&D conversion. I created a whole like Dune part of Dark Sun once that used all these weird rules. You know, as long as you're having fun, it's all good. It just is a ton of work. And, it, you know, you have to work through, at least in my case, do a lot of work to try to get it to be even reasonably decent for my friends. Um, could I do a better job? Maybe. But I tend to think that now I would be way too thorough around it. So I tend not to try to do that because I, I will spiral out of control on what I might start designing. Um, yeah. And I don't see myself as an RPG designer in terms of core mechanics and things like that. So I, I don't generally, I'm not attracted to that. Like I am adding components or rule systems, subsystems, things like that to a game. So I tend to just focus on that when I'm modifying things. I'll add areas to an existing rule set rather than modify and build my own. What do you think, Sean? I am the same way, right? As a kid, I had my group loved D and D, and they loved Top Secret, which was a super spy James Bond sort of game. Mm -hmm. And so we would run one, and we'd run a few sessions of Top Secret. And then I'm like, why am I doing both? Why don't I just mix these two? So we had the Top Secret secret agents who find a time machine and they go back in time, and they, we start using D and D rules and a bridge between the two, and then some assassins are sent player character assassins are sent to kill the player character traveling time traveling spies and then they're mm -hmm. all interacting and ogre mages are coming out and attacking and you know it's it's just a just a it was chaos but it was fun <laughs> yeah and what you can do is when you are a dm who wants to make a version of a game that you and your players love you you can work and build from the chassis of 5e or whatever mm -hmm. game you're choosing that chassis is built to be solid but flexible as long as you don't mess with the core rules with the game loop with the core mechanics you have that flexibility to go far afield and start adding on bits of the those cogs to your machine and still have a functional game or at least functional for your group <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's the important part if you want to make something larger that other people can play then you have to start getting into that huge undertaking because now you have to test everything not just for your group who kind of hand waves things and rolls with it but it has to work for everyone and it needs to be adjustable for what they want to do with it as well and so that's why you know there's game design and then there's game design. All DMs are game designers mm -hmm. because everyone has their own little tweaks and rules and, or most people, mm -hmm. uh, some people run it strictly by the book and that's okay too, but lots of people have their own little things. But if you are building your own machine from the ground up, starting with nuts and bolts and, and screws and plates, then, then you're in for a long, <laughs> long yeah. journey. And you can also do is, is kind of sit down and, and look at like, what are the things that annoy you about D&D, &D, mm -hmm. right? So those are the lists of problems you want to solve or, or eradicate, you know, something that you want to change there in that category. And then look at other games and how do they handle that differently and or better? And is that something that you can just sort of port over? 
right? It is something like bringing in chase mechanics from a different game or a skill resolution system maybe that you could port over, but that the rest of it would still be intact. Or should you start from another game and maybe port D&D into that other game, right? And, and that's where the more that you play other fantasy games, if you're thinking of D&D, then you get that feel for how it can be so different to run a 13th Age or a Shadow of the Demon Lord or, uh, you know, one of the Free League games, right? Like, as you kind of do that, then you can kind of see, well, what do I want out of my play experience and do I want to port things over or start from there? And that's why we've looked at other games in past episodes. And that's why in this episode, we are going to continue that trend and we are going to look at the 2D20 system and some of the games that use that and what it means for gameplay at your tables. So, George PR, thank you so much. We are uh, going to continue this discussion with that uh, later in the episode. But first, we need to get to a little little bit of news and commentary the first bit of news being planescape adventures in the multiverse yeah it's coming soon <laughs> fandelverum below we hardly knew you planescape here we come yeah that's the so way we have <laughs> i know i know we have a ton of videos can, can i just say sean just yeah to put this into context there are five releases from DD in four months that's how bottlenecked everything became at the end of the year versus we only had keys for a really long time at the beginning of the year. So somehow, for whatever various reasons, OGL, other reasons, it all became compressed at the end of the year. And, you know, we still have one more release after Planescape. So, Yep. So what have we learned about Planescape from these videos and from other sources? Well, we've seen the covers including the friendly local gaming store version by Tony D'Eterlizzi, who, if you are familiar with the old second edition Planescape books, you are familiar with Tony's work. We already knew that there was a slipcase involved with a DM screen, a map, and a three-book set, a setting book called Sigil and the Outlands, a monster book called Mort's Planar Parade, and an adventure called turn of fortune's wheel so with that that we knew and now we have videos lots and lots of videos <laughs> teos took one for the team and he watched the videos you I don't did. read the comments but you always watch the videos yeah there were Tell a us, lot teos. Of, there are a lot of spoilers so if you are a player uh be careful with these videos. They they say things that I kind of wish they didn't in terms of if, if you want to experience that adventure. Um, they obviously spoil what's in the setting book too, but um, but there there are the videos are full of spoilers about the adventures, the like key fundamental things. At a high level, what we've learned, and, and by, I should say that if you want to go to Blue Sky and check out, uh, Brandis Stoddard has all kinds of um, pictures that he's shared because he got an early copy and has been sharing that this last weekend, I think it was, or maybe even Friday. Um, So you can see the table of contents and everything. But at a high level, we see that, first and foremost, the Wizards of the Coast team has decided that it is now Sigil and not Sigil. Um, I I appreciate that. I'm still going to call it Sigil, hmm. and we'll always call it Sigil. And I know I'm wrong, and I will continue to do so. They, They claim to have some, you know, certainty from back in the day. 
I don't know. I, I, I remember talking to Keith Baker about uh, Sire Siri and in, in, in that area of, of Eberron. And he said, well, you know, I always thought about a Siri, but now I don't like that because of the obvious mm-hmm. iPhone interaction. So therefore, Sire maybe is the most sensical. So there are reasons to change it. Anyway, uh, Sigil plays a strong role in the adventure and setting. In fact, if you look at the table of contents for the setting book, it is Sigil and the Outlands. So it's, it's actually a lot like if you go back and listen to that episode um, where we talked about the Modron March adventure, that's a lot of what we're seeing here, right? Going through all of those gate towns, talking about the Outlands, talking about the areas of the city. That's the focus. It's not about the Plane of Fire. It's not about, you know, the Nine Hells or anything like that. It really is about these gate towns, Outlands, Sigil. Um, we get to see lots of art in these videos and um, focusing on the gate towns a lot. The idea that each of these is colored by the energy of or characteristics of the plane that it borders. Um, we get 16 towns that are detailed, many with new levels of detail or a fresh take. Um, this is another case, as we've seen with various other older settings coming back, where the team was not shy about making some changes where they felt it was needed. Um, and and yeah, and so we see that 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 uh, all of these towns they have they have taken given it a new look or a fresh eye, the way that they did uh, Ravenloft in Van Richten's, and they looked at those different domains and made some changes. All kinds of monsters, cranium rats, dark weavers, uh, Modron types uh, of various of the species that were really kind of big in the Planescape handbook. Um, the adventure again, there are a lot of spoilers. I won't repeat them here other than to say that there are surprises as to how it begins. I think it's a really cool premise. Um, And that premise creates an immediate mystery that resolves specifically around the characters and how they relate to the setting of Planescape. I think that's a really neat idea. Resolving that mystery, which is spoiled in the videos, (laughs) will result in the end of the adventure being a high level experience. That's something they've talked about before. Um, So you get both kind of lowish levels and then high level play, which is kind of neat idea. Uh, I think a lot of groups will enjoy how that plays out. And we talk, the videos talk about the factions. And uh, did you play Planescape, Sean? Were you familiar with that setting? Not not second edition versions, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, I didn't either. It was one of those things that as a kid, I was like, I only have so much money. I'm saying no to Planescape. Um, and I always thought it was very quirky. I was more of a manual planes type person uh, rather than a sigil outlands factions type thing but the factions are a huge part of the flavor of the setting historically and there have been originally i think 15 factions now there are 12 there's a book that came out faction war where various factions fell apart and were combined and things like that so some of that is carried forward now in this new version and some of it it goes back to the original so again they've given it a fresh look um our show notes kind of list the various ones that are here it's either going to mean a lot to you or not but they've combined I took my guesses as to what I'm seeing as to how they're combining things, but there is a, a section in the book that says minor uh, factions, so maybe some of those appear there. Um, the point of factions is to give you a real sense of how the city operates, the different power structures, and the ethos behind each of these factions, right? Like super lawful or super chaotic, and to ground that in the, the space of the city physically with these different entities that are kind of vying for power. And, and operating things in their particular way. Yeah, I uh, 
we we've had discussions about factions in the past and what they can add to a game and sort of the original forgotten realms factions of right order of the gauntlet the yeah. harpers and tarum etc they were such a highlight of the game and and then they went away or they got much less coverage and now we're getting hit with 12 factions plus some <laughs> minor factions it'll be interesting to see if there's anything about them that actually play into the story mm-hmm. or if it's just these are the factions now you dm you do what you want with them to pay based on your player choices yeah uh, but it I've, I've always been interested in Planescape, but it hit me at the exact wrong time of my gaming career, mm-hmm. right when I stopped playing and then it came out. So I never got back into it. But I've always loved that idea of these gate towns. Mm-hmm. And I think you can have so much fun with those without going to an extreme, uh, without, you know, you are in limbo now. Right. It's like you were in a limbo light state yeah. here. And we can we can play around with that and have fun with that. And it's so ripe for both story-focused players and mechanics-focused players because yeah. you can do cool things with both. So I, I think it's a good direction that they're heading uh, with the caveat that I still haven't seen the book. Right. But have it on pre-order, so let's let's get this going. It's nice to see this book um, in the table of credits has a number of interesting things. Um, one is that they really they say they have a managing editor, editor and an editorial department. That's always interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of reinstating that from before. Uh, Justice Ramin Arman is one of the leads along with Wes Snyder. So in the past, the leads have been, if you remember that old studio blog, the studio blog kind of said, you know, project leads will be people at this level, right? They like, I forget what the name of it was, but it was like the project directors or something like that. And it was a set of people that would do that. But here we have Justice working at that high level. So that's really cool. Um, and then we see, you know, like folks like Dan Dillon working on the rules and PC options side. He had a nice video where he talked about the Gate Warden background and the Planner Philosopher background, uh, feats that have uh, an attempt to create role-playing hooks through those different feats. There's one that's Scion of the Outer Plains that unlocks other feats, new spells, new magic items. A lot of it is around the idea of, hey, you've got a planar gate. Uh, can you return to it? Can you find it again? Can you open one that's closed? Can you close one that's open? Things like that. Uh, the Mimir, a floating uh, skull that can provide information for you. I'm a big fan of that kind of approach. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the the videos are neat from a design perspective. You just have to be careful about those spoilers. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating, and I'd like to see how they handle this. It was, a, I think, a challenge in the past. Sigil is described as a sort of Times Square, and the Outlands is this wild, incredible place. And all of these experiences, sort of everything turned up to 11. And that can be hard to sustain. And I'm curious whether they give you advice on how to sustain that being interesting and not becoming the background, right? That can be a hard thing to do. Yeah. So so how do you make this melting pot really come out? And, and, and you know, sort of the first time you describe like, oh, there's a cafe and you have a, a diva and a devil, you know, hanging out and having a conversation, uh, you know, but where do you go from there, right? How do you keep that mm-hmm. fresh and interesting? We'll see if they tell you. Yep. And so all of these videos or many of these videos are linked in our show notes, but you can just find them by going to YouTube and and searching on Wizards of the Coast and Planescape. 
Uh, and the Neverwinter MMO will likely have a Planescape edition, but not this year or so yeah. we are hearing. Yeah, I was very uh, surprised. You're, you're the MMO folk here. Uh, what, what, what do you have to say? So I was surprised that that there was an interview where they said, you know, oh, yeah, we'll have it, but but not this year. And I thought, oh, OK, interesting. I wonder what the next release will be. And they said, well, it's going to be Light of Xeraxis. Spelljammer. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes Neverwinter has done that where the MMO has gone to, you know, something from before. And sometimes it's completely like Tomb of Annihilation was concurrent with Tomb of Annihilation in tabletop. But sometimes they go back and pick things up. So they're apparently going to go back to Spelljammer. In fact, there are some early previews showing, you know, you can be on the deck of a ship in Wild Space. So that'll be neat to see. Um, worth also mentioning that you can get 12 faction recruitment posters on D&D Beyond as downloads that are kind of fun. So you can you know, use those as handouts in your game. Nice. Well, we, we go from the outer reaches of the multiverse in Planescape, to deep underground, sort of, in Minecraft. The Minecraft D&D DLC and the free Lightning Keep adventure are now available. Uh, Teos, take take it away. Yeah, I, for, I, I was kind of, wait, what? A Minecraft release now? Like, didn't that happen a while back? But it's because now Minecraft has actually, re- actually released that DLC D&D content that we heard about way back when. Um, so in a video, the designers say this is the first Minecraft DLC to be story driven of any Minecraft DLC. Uh, the goal of completing a true story with a beginning, middle and end. It's a kind of hilarious video because the partner guy constantly interrupts the main uh, Minecraft company guy <laughs> and says constantly things like we were able to overcome the shortcomings of, of Minecraft kind of over and over again. So I, I found it like the most hilarious like video of like, oh, man, someone talked to you. Um, yeah. But we saw scenes from Icewind Dale on Aurora Borealis to, to kind of create the experience there. Uh, YouTube video shows off a dragon sitting on a horde of coins. And they did many firsts for this DLC voiceovers to create a narrative and emotional immersion stats classes a bunch of things that they added to the experience combat was reworked to provide more of a tabletop feel um, your class gives you two special abilities things like that uh, and then on the tabletop side to sort of celebrate this we get a free download of lightning keep an adventure for four to six pcs of third level uh, chris perkins in a video talked about how it uses the minecraft monsters how he was struck by lightning once <laughs> this was apparently Part of the inspiration. And I mean, if anyone's surprised that Chris Perkins was struck by lightning, I mean, it just sort of makes sense. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, oh, he's got the, he's got the leap year birthday, you know, yeah. February 29th. It, it all, it all makes sense. It's it all, all coming sense. together. Um, yeah. So link to, link to that, find it on DD beyond. Um, and um, you can still claim those Minecraft monsters if you never downloaded those and want to do that. So that's all still available. It's all still there. From things that are available to things that aren't, we heard that Evil Genius Games is suing Netflix over the license to Rebel Moon being pulled. So what happened here, apparently, allegedly, is that Netflix hired Evil Genius to create a role-playing game based on their Rebel Moon uh, movie that's coming out. And so work was done. A game was made. Not only was a game made, but the people at Evil Genius created this huge world Bible 
that filled the entire world universe <laughs> in this rebel moon uh, setting that wasn't there. And we've seen that in the past is the role-playing game version of something adds so much to a universe uh, that then the movie or the book industry picks up and continues yeah. with. Star Wars and is a great example. Star Wars, perfect example of this. So uh, so everybody was happy. Yeah. Netflix was getting the rebel moon role-playing game plus this world book that they would be able to use and then netflix claiming a breach of nda protocols canceled the license and the game <laughs> but kept the story bible that had been created which by all accounts was massive and then said but we'll give you 50 grand for it which is a yeah. sort of strange like we're keeping this it's ours but we'll pay you for it and, uh, you know, Evil Genius is, um, they are backed by um, venture capital. So I think that venture capital firm said no and decided let's, you know, let's fund something else, which is suing Netflix uh, because mm -hmm. we understand the value of this that we've written. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. And it's another story about the perils of this industry and how there's no free lunch out there, right? You think like, oh, I got a great deal working with Netflix. Well, maybe. Yeah, and if 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 Evil Genius was not funded by venture capital, if it was just out there, you know, making money by selling books online or in stores or digitally, uh, there's no way that they would have been able to create this this uh, this lawsuit and yeah. and actually see it through. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on this, uh, in for for a variety of reasons. Yeah, well, and, and this is going to be a warning to, you know, we've seen a couple of other cases where uh, RPGs have had, a, you know, there's going to be a TV show, there's going to be a whatever. And it's a reminder to those companies that you really want to nail down what can happen with everything that you create and how many properties they can create off of it, right? Because if they own this, Netflix own this story Bible, they've canceled your game, you've got no income, and they can do whatever they want with that. Launch countless, you know, mm -hmm. books, novels video games other role-playing games <laughs> their own role-playing game later yeah so yeah, yeah. that's a thing that we will keep an eye on we wanted to say happy birthday not to a person but to a wiki the forgotten realms wiki is 18 years old and it has been a fantastic source of lore and information since 2005 so if you are a forgotten realms fan who has relied on the FR wiki to uh, keep you in the know. Wish them a happy birthday. Yeah. Amazing. Time flies. What's happening in what's happening in France, Teos? Oh, well, the most important thing is for sure that workers are building a castle from scratch following the traditional 13th century methods. And there's a fantastic NPR article on this castle being built in France. Uh, the whole surrounding like village area is influenced by this many locals have taken up traditional jobs there are you know tours coming through and all this kind of thing to try to fund it because it's a very long project um but you can see pictures of it too like they're building you know the walls and turrets and things like that but my favorite quote is npr asks these two kids from a nearby village if they're interested in doing a job of this kind of traditional 13th century kind of job someday and one boy says Yes, I've always wanted to be a stone carver. 
Not me, says another. I'm going to be a YouTuber. <laughs> what was the 13th century version of YouTuber? Mm. I'm wondering. <laughs> town crier? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, the town crier. That would be great. Tavern? Uh, yeah, the person who puts the postings up on the yeah. bard. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear your analogies uh, uh, out there in, in mastering Dungeons Land. And finally, we have our creator and crowdfunding news. We've got one book to highlight here. It's Vecna's Book of Vile Darkness. For 20 pages, for 20 pages, for $20, you get 140 pages of content, including 13 new subclasses. You can become the monster to fight the monsters or blur the line between light and dark. New accursed lineages and backgrounds and new feats. Vassals of Vecna that have their own stat blocks and encounters and curses that progress over time and 30 new dangerous denizens and stat blocks plus templates and archetypes for changing monsters into spooky undead sessions. There are also new spells and magic items, and you can find it all on the DMs Guild right now. Very cool. With that, we will now get into our main topic today. We are talking about yet another version of role-playing games, the 2D20 system from Modifius. Oh, Tails and in honor of that. On. Since we're going to talk about Star Trek. Ah, I see what you did there. I, I'm thinking, why is he putting on his Wookiee costume? <laughs> Star Wars. There's no stars. Oh, he's going to are, make are they Star different? Wars Star Trek joke. Yes, yes. I thought they were the same yeah. thing. Yeah, one is good and the other's trash. <laughs> but I'm not going to say which is which uh, because that will outrage and or entice yeah. certain uh, certain members of our audience. Well, look, but, when, when Yoda tells you to go after the Romulans, the first thing you do is grab that blue phone booth and get in it and go mm -hmm. straight to the Romulans. A absolutely. Every time. <laughs> this is the way. Anywho, the 2D20 system created by Modifius Games, and it isn't just one system, it's a lot of systems. And they built a lot of different games based on this. But like we said in our previous segments, we're doing this because we love 5th edition and we love D&D. But we also love games. We also love all different sorts of games. So we look at other games to inform us about how to play in different ways and maybe borrow or if not borrow, maybe eschew certain types of play styles mm -hmm. uh, by looking at these other games and figuring out what we love and what we might not like so much. So this two, two, 2D20 system is a settingless system, and you can get a quick start. Uh, uh, first of all, you can get a system reference document from DriveThruRPG for free that sort of gives you an outline for the system. And it's there to help you build your own games based on the system. You can also get free quick starts for several of the 2D20 games that Modifius publishes. Star Trek Adventures, Dune, John Carter of Mars, 
Fallout, Actum Cthulhu, many, many more uh, games are built with that, and several of them have a 2D20 quick start for free available at DriveThru. So, Teos, the 2D20 system, without considering their settings, what are the basics? Yeah, so the the and I, you know I should say you know this better than I do because you've written for Star Trek Adventures, whereas all, all I did is uh, show up on a very fun uh, actual play of Dune. So I know the the Dune version pretty well. Um, okay, but but the concept is that you're rolling two d twenties, and you have to get a number of successes, which are set as the kind of target by the DM of how many successes you need for a situation. And what I like about that is that that easily encompasses both a very quick thing like, you know, shoot shoot the person, shoot the enemy, or it can be like, get this spaceship to to work, right? So if you've got to get, you know, your uh, uh, warp drive going so you can get to Alderaan, then, you know, all you got to do is get your Wookiee to uh, make a certain number of <laughs> successes. I'll stop. Uh, I'll exactly. Be but yeah. Okay. Teos is being have from this point <laughs> forward. <laughs> it's but, the vaccine. But, it's not me. Exactly. But what he's saying is true. Uh, the 2D20 system is based on a the idea. Well, I want to step all the way back. So in the mm-hmm. SRD, we get this general text that says the 2D20 system is great for, quote, emulating and celebrating action-packed story-driven fiction and thrives when paired with a setting or a theme where competent, determined, often larger-than-life protagonists face tense and perilous situations. And, quote, uh, it benefits collaboration and teamwork being vital to success. And my first thought is, every game's like that. (laughs) Except it's not. There, There are many many more niche games that are mm-hmm. more cerebral or that there are more about feelings rather than actions. Yeah. So I guess this text is relevant, but it's also like every system says this, right? Yeah. 5e says this and and fate says this and, and yeah, it seems like but, every game says this. Though I will say that that as compared at least my Dune experience as compared to say 5e or a lot of other game systems does have more collaboration and teamwork to it and that more of your feats, your traits uh, are pushing that concept of hey you can get someone to roll a die or uh, otherwise you know create an asset or do something that's going to help them and a lot of it is about explaining why you can use your best dice. It's almost backwards of D&D where we kind of go like, oh, come on, don't just make the skill challenge with like, you know, I'm going to use my constitution because I'm the best at it. This is saying do that because you are a hero. You are supposed to be very good. You are supposed to drive the fiction. So you explain narratively why you get to use your best skill and your best drive to achieve success. And I think that is kind of neat. It is. It is. Uh, I think 5e does the exact, all these things. Uh, it may not feel it, mm. right? You might not feel that collaboration is there because of the mechanic of the 2d20 and the counting up of successes, yeah. as opposed to just overcoming one number with one die roll. Right. Uh, but the, the teamwork is still there, right? You've got the guidance spell, you've got help, you've got, mm 
haste. You've got these things that you, bardic inspiration that there does work best when there, there is teamwork, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel that way because there is less narrative behind it. Uh, so in that sense, you are absolutely correct. So what dice do we use in a 2D20 system? You're going to be shocked to find out that mostly you use D20s. <laughs> and and for the most part, uh, at least at the most basic level, you need two of those. You also sometimes use D6s, depending on the game, if you're rolling on a table. And then they have something called challenge dice, which are still D6s, but these are used to count up damage, to mark progress toward a larger task, or to provide icons. What does that mean? Well, a challenge die for most of the games in the 2D20 system will look like this. One facet of the the D6 will have a one on it. One will have a two on it. Two of the faces will be blank. And then the, the fifth and sixth face will have like an icon, some sort of special icon. So obviously a one means one success or one point. A two means two. Blanks mean zero. And then the five or the six, the 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 icon means one success plus something else happening. Gotcha. Uh, so so that is that is the those are the dice types that you will use. Mm. Let's let's move over to the character side of things for just a second. Most characters in 2D20 games have two categories of things that tell how good they are at, at different uh, different aspects of the game. One is attributes, and the second is skills. Mm-hmm. So attributes are who you are. Skills are what you are good at doing based on the training that you've had. The In the SRD, they give as attributes agility, brawn, coordination, insight, reason, and will. Sure. Mm-hmm. Six. We're, we're familiar with six attributes. <laughs> yep. Skills in the base uh, SRD are fight, know, as opposed to knowing, or as as example, knowing things, move, operate, survive, and talk. And now, think, every game yeah. will then change those. And I think but, that's a neat part of this game in that it doesn't, you, you, you look at that list of skills and you're like, oh, that's really very few. But what it's doing is is encouraging you to explain how one of these fits, and it should be kind of obvious, but then to give you the room to say, how are you good? Like, yes, it's a fight skill, but how are you good at it? And that's where these focuses come in, which are a big part of your character, is saying yeah. that you are focused in this particular area, which will give you that opportunity to get more successes. Yep. So when you are resolving a task what happens is the dm will set a difficulty between zero and five and we'll talk about zero later you know zero being you really can't fail one being yeah it's relatively easy but but you still have a chance of failure two three four up to five and this is the number of successes right that's the number of successes the number Mm -hmm. of dice that need to overcome the target number that you're shooting for. How do you set the target number? The target number is based on you, your character. So attributes are generally a number between about 
eight and 12 is, is a, is a range that's normal. 12 being quite high, eight being quite low, but some things like animals trying to reason would be very low. It'd be like three or four. Uh, whereas, you know, somebody who's very strong uh, brawn wise would be like a 12 or 13. And then your skills generally go from zero or one to five. So you're going to add your attribute and your skill together to get a target number. So say you're normal around a 10 for your attribute of brawn and for your skill of fight, you will have two. So you're, you're pretty good. You're not five, but you're not zero. You're, mm -hmm. you're two that brawn of a brawn of 10 and a fight of two would add up to 12. So on your D twenties, you're trying to get 12 or lower. So you're trying to roll low in this game. Obviously, the higher your attribute, the higher your skill, the higher that target number is, making it easier to roll beneath. Yeah. Then you roll your 2d20, and you count how many you get below. So if it's if the difficulty uh, is 2, then you would need to roll both of those below your target number. Right. However, there are ways to add more dice to your pool. There are also ways to get more than one success on a single die, which we will talk about now. Uh, if you obviously, if you get less than the difficulty number, you fail. If you exceed the difficulty number, meet or exceed the difficulty number, uh, number of successes, then you you succeed. For every point that you get a number of successes above the difficulty number, you gain what they call capital M momentum. Momentum is something then that you can spend. So if the difficulty was one and I got three successes, I would have two momentum. You can spend that momentum right away to get additional benefits based on what you've done. You can also pool that momentum and use it later for other skill tests. Yeah. We'll go back to the momentum pool in a second, but that gives and, you the basic basic yeah. skill test task resolution. And I, I really like that. It, it feels uh, sort of like a different way of achieving what gumshoe games do, where they let you, you know, spend your dice uh, because you really want to succeed. Momentum helps you. It doesn't guarantee success, but it can really improve the odds uh, mm -hmm. of rolling those numbers of successes that you need. And then, of course, if you roll a one, then you're going to get two successes, which is even better. Yeah. So from, from here, you could say, well, how do you get a five difficulty? How do you succeed on a five difficulty? If you roll a one on a die... That counts as two successes toward the overcoming the difficulty. So if I was only rolling two d20, but I rolled both ones, that would count as four successes on two d20. Also, if you are um, specially trained in something and you are using your focus, so say you have a 10 in brawn and a two in fight, but your specialty and fight is using a sword. Mm -hmm. You get to then do some special things. One of those special things is 
if any of those D20 dice meet or are below your skill score, so with a two of fight, if I got a two or lower on any of those dice, then that would count as two successes rather than just a one. So if you've got a four in some skill, if you rolled four or lower, as long as you're using your focus or you're you're using the skill in a way that taps into your focus, then a four or lower on a die counts as two successes. Yeah. So right there, you, you can add successes based on die rolls. However, if you roll a 20, <laughs> we get to add a mishap. That doesn't mean you fail. You could still succeed having rolled a 20, but the DM gets to add a mishap to the game. A mishap could be something that happens right away, or the DM could bank that mishap, turn it into something called threat that the D that the game master has that can add to the difficulty of encounters or scenes or the DM can use to make life more interesting for your yeah. characters. Uh, so there's a lot going on, but it's still relatively simple and easy to pick up as you go. The other, the last thing I want to say about the skill resolution uh, of two, a 2D20 game is that there are ways to add more dice to your dice pool. So instead of rolling 2D20s, you can roll up to 5D20s based on other aspects of the game. You can spend momentum to add additional dice to your dice pool. You can look at talents that you have or... In different games have different ways of doing it, but essentially you can get up to a dice pool of 5d20, which then gives you the opportunity to, to uh, overcome those five difficulty challenges that might, mm -hmm. that you might face. I yeah, think and, that, yeah. And sometimes if you have a thing that, that stepwise sort of like that example, like, you know, you've got a crashed spaceship, and you need to fix the warp drive and the thrusters and the navigation system, you might be allowed to add up successes over several people trying, right? So I'm going to mm -hmm. work on this system. I get two successes. Okay, the warp drive's on. Now I got to roll another two to get this other thing. Okay, the navigation system's on, you know, and someone else tries another thing. And so you might be able to add successes to, to an attempt that you're doing through a, a more complex skill. What they call yeah. that. And even if you don't have momentum to, to use, you can buy momentum by giving the DM threat. So you're mm -hmm. paying, it's that currency that we yeah. talk about that, that we see in some games where, all right, I need to, I need this success badly. So here I'm going to use, I want to get momentum, buy momentum by giving the game master threat that that the game master will use later to make my life a living hell, but at least I've succeeded right now. Right. Yep. When you've got to, and that's neat. I like that ability yep. to say, no, this is the thing that's important to me. I'm going to do mm -hmm. this, even though I'm risking it all. And it, a lot of the, the narrative, if you think of movies and novels, like it actually makes a lot of sense that sometimes you do this thing that it's going to hurt you later, but you really got to succeed now. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to look now at two different versions of the 2D20 system. First, we're going to look at Dune, which Teos had, had mentioned playing. And then we're going to look at Star Trek Adventures uh, because I helped work on that core rulebook and some of the supplements. So yeah. Teos, 
Tell us what you thought of Dune, Adventuring in the Imperium, which you're yeah. holding up right now. It, it is a gorgeous book. Um, it's, you know, I, I like to talk about how pretty Free League is uh, in their books. This is every bit as gorgeous. It really is just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful uh, book. Super, like if you're a Dune fan, you, you look at this and it feels like an art book for Dune. Like it really is gorgeous. Um, super <laughs> lovely to look over. Um, the, the Dune game starts very interestingly with a ton of setting. Like the first 84 pages is all setting, Sean, like pretty deep stuff, like really explaining all about it. In fact, if you're a Dune fan, it's kind of nice because it really breaks down a lot of things that just reading the novels, you know, you may not get to sort them into kind of how it all really operates. And, and so it's, it's kind of neat to, to read that it gives you a, a sort of new take on, um, Dune as a story to look over it. Um, the rules are pretty close to, to what you described. A major change is that instead of like this, um, uh, the idea of like your brawn or sort of more like ability scores, what Dune uses as the basic abilities is what's called drive. And so the drive is duty, faith, justice, power, truth. And you can see how that changes this to be a very Dune experience, right? I am all about power or I'm all about justice or faith, whatever it may be that motivates me. And so you're combining that drive with your skill and the skills are battle, communicate, discipline, move or understand. And that's what's going to drive the number that you need to roll under. Um, there are no challenge dice in, in the Dune uh, version, so you don't use that. Um, it's otherwise very similar to what's going on otherwise. You often will get to choose your drive and your skills. Sometimes the GM may say, you know, hey, it's really about this particular drive or it's this particular skill. The skills, the more often uh, of the two, the one that more typically a GM will say, well, you know, you're in battle. But then you may be able to say, like, well, but I'm using my faith. Here's why. And the GM can go, OK, yeah, that's great. Um, the same thing as you talked about with momentum, um, you often have an asset that helps. So when you're doing character creation, you may say that, you know, you've got poisons or you've got uh, a blade that you've always practiced with, something like that. And then you can use that as an asset to help you roll more dice. Um, the momentum can do things like create an asset for a scene uh, or create a trait about the scene or situation, which is really neat. And often other characters can assist, so they make their own role and add to the total number of successes. And then, of course, the focus is really important. Um, and, and I think those elements, when I played Dune, it really comes together nicely to create that feeling of what your character is doing. So I played a, a Sook doctor uh, that was sort of a failed doctor, but that wasn't necessarily known by everybody. So I'm kind of like the doctor that failed out but pretends to not have failed out. And I'm actually an assassin. <laughs> um, <laughs> And when we did the actual play, you know, one of the neat things you do in the uh, after the setting section is a setting to create your own house and establish your domain. And we went absurd, as players often do. We made the house of Posh based on the Spice Girls. Uh, nice. I don't know how that happened, but once it started happening, it was unstoppable. And so then we all had some, you know, I was like this assassin doctor that was all about nutrition and nutrients, but of course, in a terrible way that's really poisoning you. Um, but yeah, it's neat. And creating a character is really nice and doing it. It's one of those things that truly starts with the concept and says, think through your concept with that concept, 
now go in and decide your template that you're going to apply to it. Like, so you, you I, I, I went with Sook Doctor, but you could have been a Fremen or a Mentat or a Ben Gesserit sister. Um, and there are archetypes that you can pull from that give you additional um, definition that you can use from. So I'm a soldier or I am a, you know, um, teacher or whatever it might be, athlete, uh, dualist, something like that. Um, and you select traits. So you and, and usually one trait is your role. So like I'm the Duke of the house, right? So you can really go there just like in novels. I'm the weapons master. And the second is more personal, like I'm ruthless or I'm just and wise. Um, your skills range from four to eight. You get a primary at six, a secondary at five and three others at four. So it's sort of very dictated as to how you start. Later, you can improve those. Um, and you have some additional points so you can add to skills. And you get four focuses. Those are those areas that really get to customize what you are specifically about, what you feel like your training is, really lets you put your stamp on the character and the story. Three total talents, which are kind of like feats, like adrenaline shot to remove an affliction a party member has, or subtle step to sneak more easily. You rank your five drives from eight uh, down to four, and um, and you create statements, which is kind of neat. So, like, you know, for my character, this failed doctor, um, power was a six. And I, for the top three, you create statements. So I said, uh, the true power comes through change. Um, for justice, the scales of balance require those who will adjust the scales themselves, right? So you just kind of some sort of ethos that can help you role playing. I thought that was a really neat angle. And then you get to choose three assets, and that defines how your character is. And I, I, I liked that a lot. I thought that was a really nice system for that. Yeah. The Star Trek Adventures shows you the flexibility of, of this of this system and how you can use it in different ways. Because while it still had some of the same things that, that I talked about originally or that Teos talked about, being Star Trek, it's much different. Um, first of all, the, the core book, as Teos said, I'm going to hold up my Star Trek version, is really unique uh just the art and the sort of making it look like the old computer screens that they would use uh is is pretty it's pretty wild so it's got black uh background and then white or you know lightly colored text but it's made to look like a a computer from from star trek so it's just neat aesthetically and i think wasn't there a borg cube too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could. There are so many supplements for this. There was a Borg cube that had like four or five different books in it. <laughs> there are so many supplements for for this game. I lost track. Like up to and including the lower decks supplement. You know, the lower decks animated version of Star Trek. Uh, th there's something for that. There's something for just about every bit of Star Trek trivia out there. And as with Dune. There is so much lore in this. I mean, I was a pretty big Star Trek fan. I knew many of the races, and I. But as I'm reading, as I was reading through this book, uh, while I was working on it, reading the drafts of it, I was like, I did not know that. I did mm -hmm. not know that. I did not know why the different quadrants were called what they are and mm -hmm. who's Speaking where. Speaking of why. lore in RPGs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was great. That's awesome. So there's a lot of that, but it's it's all intermingled quite well, I think, with the actual rules supplements, uh, with the rules pieces of this. Uh, 
what are the attributes and the disciplines? So they use attributes like we, they did in the SRD, but they use disciplines instead of skills. So mm. if you think of, of Star Trek, right there, you're either command or you're engineering or your security. So they sort of went along those lines. So your attributes are control, daring, fitness, insight, presence, and reason. And your disciplines are command, the con, right? The controls, mm -hmm. engineering, security, science, and medicine. Mm -hmm. So you're getting all of those traditional yeah. Star Trek uh, roles as the disciplines. So how do you build your character? I'm glad you asked. They have a life path system hmm. where you, there are seven steps in this system and each one gives you either certain traits, values, or focuses or give you bonuses to your attributes and disciplines. So you start with a seven in each attribute and a one in each discipline. So you're at least a little good at doing all of those things, command, con, et cetera, because you're a Starfleet officer or you know, a Starfleet a Starfleet member. So you, you need these. Hmm. So first you pick your species and that gives you certain bonuses to attributes, you know, certain traits, values, and focuses. Like, like a Mon Calamari and, can breathe water. Exactly. Exactly. So you start with your species, then you, the environment in which you grew up will give you some, some bonuses, some other things. Then uh, it was your upbringing, how you were brought up. Then you go to Starfleet Academy. And what do you do at Starfleet Academy? What do you study? What are mm. your specialties? Then you'd make a career choice as the fifth step. Then you have career events, things that happen to you early in your career uh, with Starfleet. And finally, it's the finishing touches, those little things about yourself that make you unique from every other person uh, who would have the exact same things as you. And so with those, you have all your attribute scores and your discipline scores, a bunch of traits, a bunch of values, and then foci, focuses, which you can use to uh, change up those dice pools as you go. It also introduces something uh, called determination. So you start your session with determination, with one determination. And you can use that when you're about to roll your dice. So if, if something is happening, it's very important and it is tied to your values or a directive that you are have been given for a mission, instead of rolling that extra D20 determination die, you can say, I'm using my determination and you place it on the table on a one, which means you automatically succeed with two successes. Oh. But so that's another like bit of currency. Yeah. Because Star Star Trek is, you know, the main characters don't often die in Star Trek, other than Tasha Yar. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are other well, examples, spoilers. but for the most part, yeah, I know. For the most part, they don't die. So yeah. this game wants you to succeed and it gives you the tools to do so. It may be at a cost, it might be at a significant mm -hmm. cost, but you know, it's it's there. And then how does teamwork work? Teamwork, because it talked about teamwork. So how does that bring itself into the game? Characters can assist someone else who's making a skill test. They can roll 1d20 to add to the number of successes. So if the main person, the main person doing the task can roll five. 
and then other people who have the ability to help can roll a d20 and they can use their own numbers based on their own attributes and their own disciplines mm-hmm. however in order to count as a success toward the task the main person has to get at least one success so five people might be able to help somebody do something but if that rich that initial person doesn't <laughs> have at least one success all the other help goes for naught wow uh, and star trek does use those uh dice those extra dice i forgot what they're called uh the challenge 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 dice because they use it for things like weapons Mm. so if you shoot somebody with a phaser you may succeed on the the shot but how much you do depends on those dice that you're rolling so a very light weapon might only do like two challenge dice whereas a heavy weapon might Mm. do eight challenge dice and so you roll those and you can succeed with the shot, but you could just do a glancing blow. If you roll all blanks and only one, one, it would only do one point of stress. And then there may be a way for someone to soak up that stress, that stress damage based on equipment they have or mm-hmm. traits that they have. The extra effects, like trying to stun someone works with those icons I talked about. So you roll the challenge dice. Oh, okay, I got two, three, four, plus I got an icon. So that counts as one more. So that's five. Plus if the weapon has an extra trait, I get to trigger that extra trait, which could be knock someone down, which could be to wound someone, which could be something based on the Mm -hmm. weapon. So that's where those extra dice come in. Those challenge dice come in to give it a little more realistic feel of, oh, that was a point blank perfect shot that did all this damage or I hit, but it was a glancing blow and we have to continue from there. Uh, But overall it's a very fun game. And I think in, in its own way, the 2d 20 system does a good job of capturing the feel for the games that it Mm -hmm. is uh, twisted to fit into there was a fallout game going on at origins. I was running star Trek. There was a fallout game next to me and they were having a blast and you could tell they were using a different version of the 2d 20 system <laughs> based specifically on that. Cause that's all about like surviving and gaining resources yeah. and, and doing that thing. So the game was focused mm-hmm. more in that way. It was more about the equipment you could grab rather than the things that you were particularly good at. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm very impressed with how different each system is, but within the general categories, right? You can see that abilities, attributes, drives, skills, disciplines, you know, you it's a bit of renaming, it's a bit of changing, but e- even things that like the points will be different, right? What the what the points like you were describing how everybody starts with 7 and then you add numbers whereas in, in mm-hmm. Dune you it's between 4 and 8. And so you, right. you they're lower. But it's because, mm-hmm. but then you get more ways to boost them, probably, and and so yeah, some interesting right. different pieces that they tweak to create the particular story experience, which is really neat. I think the one thing that I've noticed running, I've run Star Trek a few times. I've never played it mm-hmm. with like the, the super experienced two D twenty game master, which is one way that you learn how to run a game. So I was just running it based on. First, my knowledge of a incomplete draft of the game, 
and then of an, a complete draft of the game that has had some errata and that you know, I haven't played in a couple of years. It It is like any game with that currency. It takes some experience to learn how to use it and when to use it. Because as I was running Star Trek, it felt like the players always had six momentum points to spend if they wanted to. And my threat pool never seemed to have enough to really do anything. And when I could, it it didn't feel as fulfilling to me as it could have. Yeah. And you know, part of it that was just my inexperience running the game. But I, I think for the game to reach its full potential, you have to have someone game mastering who is experienced with using that currency to its maximum effect both mechanically and story-wise yeah i could see that sure sure yeah hmm. but that that that's my experience with the 2d20 system oh. and when i first saw it i was like this is really cool i need to use it and then life got in the way sure. and then i went back and and like re relearned it for origins i'm like oh this is cool we this we need to use this for a game and then life and now i'm looking at it again and going boy i really wish there was you know yeah. a game that was perfect for what i'm interested in that uses mm. this system and i'm sure i will never touch it until the next thing comes up that work related uh <laughs> have to have to yeah. do well I'm, I'm guessing they will do more with the system because it does seem like it's a very flexible system and they seem to understand how to make it flexible um mm. I, I've noted that, you know, they have a few good Dune source books, but there is a ton of Star Trek. Like Star Trek's definitely their their major uh, emphasis. And so it's sort of like Freely, like Freely, some of their games will have a few supplements and for others will have a ton. And Star Trek has a ton, plus an organized play program that was there. And so a lot of options, a lot of ways that you can try that out, which is cool. Yeah. And one of the cool things is the settings that they're using are very diverse and mm. would seem like a good escape from a typical fantasy. They used this system originally, I think for Conan huh. okay. and I think they lost the license for that. So it's gone now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't know if it was as well loved as a fantasy uh, setting system than it is for Fallout, Star Trek, yeah. Action Cthulhu. I played, but as a fate game. <laughs> but that yeah. is an amazing setting of what happens if in World War II the Nazis actually have eldritch power <laughs> as well as military might, yeah. and you're fighting that. Uh, so that's a great system. Yeah, I mentioned John Carter of Mars and, yeah. and these other systems. So if you're looking for a get let's get away from the fantasy for a while and get into the sci-fi or some other genres this may be something that you would like to look into yeah awesome glad we did it yeah i'm glad we did it too so anything else teos before we mosey on into the sunset no i mean i again i'll just reiterate i really love those different things between each of the games like i have a lot of respect for people who can think through how to make particularly you know like build your own house right for dune like that's a neat angle that, mm -hmm. that 
I love it when companies are willing to just sit back and think, okay, for this setting, what should we do differently? And that's, that's neat. Absolutely. So thank you, Teos, for sharing your experiences with Dune and all your knowledge of the news, as always. And Star Wars. And Star Trek Wars. And thank you out there to our listeners, if you are still listening and not rage screaming at the uh, speaker as you listen or watch. Thank you for helping us out by listening to our words and to our patrons who support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering DND. We thank you for your support. If you're a master of dungeon supporters, we appreciate what you're doing for us, Master of Realm supporters, you are listed in our show notes. And to the Masters of the Multiverse, y'all are going to hear about it right now. From Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, the Matha Magician, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville from Prismanics.com, the 5e space opera setting. Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much. If you would like to become a patron of the show, we would so appreciate it. It really does fire us up, helps us pay for hosting, and just gives us an overall warm feeling glow. I get I get the big whiskey when we get a new patron, so that's important. <laughs> You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. You can also support us by going to Apple Podcasts and subscribing uh, or going to YouTube and subscribing or leaving us a review via those two platforms. They're just commenting in general on what you like. So, Teos, I know you just put out something new because I got an email while we were recording. So what's going on in Alpha Streamland? Oh, you can find at alphastream.org my article that looks at the top-selling book scan numbers, the top-selling uh, settings, accessories, uh, source books, and what that kind of means and how it compares historically to things like TSR. And there's some pretty interesting stuff there. Um, later this week, I'll publish another piece as well. So it's been a lot of fun to dig into this book scan data. Um, great. really interesting historical perspectives that, that I'm glad we have, especially because it's all going to change if there's more and more direct sales. So this is kind of like the time, you know, that you can really look at it before who knows what the sales are that they're making through D&D Beyond or Virtual Tabletop or whatever. It'll get harder and harder. I'm glad we get this little window into it. That's true. And you can find all of the You can find all of that at alphastream.org. You can find me on Twitter, on mastodon on blue sky just look for sean merwin or on most of those platforms just look for mastering dungeons or mastering DD, and you'll find us all there or you can go to our youtube channel the special mastering dungeons youtube channel mm -hmm. so teos 
we've 2D20. We've been to the Star Trek and we've been to the Dune. And what are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to set my phasers on stun for the rest of the day because that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to go fill myself with spice. Mm.